You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. And our text this morning is John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. And as Pastor Robbie mentioned, this is the final message in a series entitled, A Sign from God, The Miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of of John. I hope you've been blessed by this series as much as I have. And so far we've looked at five signs in this series. We started out in John 2 where Jesus turns the water into wine and that was a sign of glory. The second message was from John 4 is a sign of life which is the healing of the official's son. Our third message was a sign of authority from John 5 where Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. And last week Uh, Pastor Craig walked us through a sign of satisfaction from John 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And now here today, in the title of this morning's message, is we're looking at a sign of sovereignty. A sign of sovereignty also here in John 6 where Jesus walks on the water. Now this is so important to remember for us. Why do we focus on these signs? Why does Jesus perform these miracles in front of the eyes of the people around him? Why? Because The signs are from God, and they are meant to point us back to God. They are meant to point us back to His glory, and each one of them are rooted in His glory and are for His glory alone. Not for the glory of the people who see them or or get the benefits of Him doing that, as we saw last week, and people getting fed. They're for His glory alone. And the purpose of this specific sign was to demonstrate The deity of Christ by showing, here it is, by showing his sovereignty over the laws and the power of nature. Okay, you say, well, wait a second, sovereignty, that's like a really big word. What does that mean? Well, I love how Wayne Grudem puts this in his book, Systematic Theology. He defines it this way. Sovereignty is God's exercise of power over his creation. That's a great definition. Sovereignty is God's exercise of power over his creation. We can unpack that. We say God, sovereignty is God having supreme power or authority over all things. If I could break that down even more, here it is, ready? God is in control. God is in control. Every detail, every moment, every step. And I don't know about you, but I'm so comforted to know that there is literally nothing that can happen to us that God has not already ordained. There's literally nothing that can happen to us that God has not already ordained. I mean, how many of us just say, okay, I just need to hear that today. I'm good to go. I got my stuff for the week, right? Stick with me. There's more. There's more. Trust me, you're going to want to stick around. You see, there is perhaps, though, at the same token, there is perhaps, though, no other doctrine that our human flesh fights against more than this one. The fact that we don't have control. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Right? I want to have my time and my agenda. I like to do things my ways when I like to do them and how I like to do them. You know, I like my kids behaving in a certain way. Well, that only lasts sometimes 20 seconds. And then you're back to square one. 
I like to have them behaving a certain way or my marriage going the way I want to or things at work going the way. I like to have the job that I want and, and things to be going with my coworkers the way I want it. I like my health to be where I want it to be so I can live the life I want. You see this? See what's happening here? It happens so subtly. And our flesh fights against this doctrine. And I love how R.C. Sproul puts this so pointedly. He says, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God. We recognize it. Hey, that's great. But we live out a belief in the sovereignty of man. Isn't that, that's so true. Most Christians salute the sovereignty of God. But we live out a belief in the sovereignty of man. And what we so often fail to realize is that the sovereignty of God over our lives, it is a gift. It is a gift from the sovereign God that is never meant to be something that is rejected or shunned, but is always meant to be embraced for our good and for his glory. And here in this text, just after he fed the 5,000, this is taking place just after that, we see Jesus showing his power and sovereignty over the laws of nature on the Sea of Galilee. And he shows us two crucial truths we must remember as we live out our lives under his sovereignty and face the situations that will come. Let's pick it up in John chapter 6, starting at verse 16. Jesus walks on water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That's amazing. Two crucial truths we see from this. Number one, God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust him through it. God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust him through it. And there's two key areas we see in the first three verses of this text that we need to trust him in. Number one is for his timing. For his timing. Look at verses 16 and 17. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. See, these verses help to set the stage for what is about to happen. And in order to get the full context of what we're looking at here, we have to look at the parallel gospel of Matthew chapter 14, where we see immediately that after feeding the 5,000, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him across the other side of the lake while he went off to pray. He, immediately after, he made them get into the ship. That's very important. And the indication that he gave the disciples when he sent them off was that he would be meeting up with them and would come to them shortly. That's why you see in verse 17 at the back half there, it says, and Jesus had not yet come to them because he told them he was coming. He would be there. Okay? Now look what happens in verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Okay, we need to get some context of where we're talking about on the Sea of Galilee. You see a picture up here. This is the Sea of Galilee, and I used to live in Israel, and let me tell you, it's every bit as beautiful as this picture shows. It's amazing. 
but it's roughly 600 feet, freshwater lake, roughly 600 feet below sea level, and it is surrounded, as you can see there, it's surrounded by mountains and hills around the vast majority of it, okay? Well, as beautiful as that is, what happens is when the wind blows through there, it literally creates a wind tunnel that can churn up water into a violent storm within minutes. So you get this picture? Here's what this looked like literally five minutes later as the storm started to roll in. You see the storm start to come in? This is what's happening, and this is just at the start of the storm. It's a wind tunnel, and it's churning up this water. Okay, and so as such, John's not just speaking here when he says a strong wind was blowing. He's not just talking about a breeze. He's depicting a violent squall. As we keep that picture up there, let's try to live in this text here. In the parallel gospel writings of this event in Matthew and Mark, you see this. Imagine you're in this boat with the disciples that Jesus made you get into and said, I'll meet you. Right? You're in this boat. You're seeing these waves get bigger and bigger. You're seeing the storm roll in. And we read in Matthew and Mark that their boats being described as being battered by the waves, being far from the land, and that they were straining at the oars just to make any progress. You have to remember, at least seven of these disciples were professional fishermen. Okay? They've been on the lake their whole lives. And they're straining at the oars, trying to make any headway possible. So think about this. As we look at that picture, picture yourself in that boat. How would you feel in this moment right here? If you were a disciple. I mean, Jesus has made you get into the boat and said that he would be meeting up with you. He said he's coming. Yet by every physical and natural indication, that doesn't seem very likely. Because you and everyone else in the boat may not even reach the shore. I mean, can you see them? Can you see them straining as hard as they can and hear them crying out in fear? We can't. We can't row anymore. We're exhausted. The waves are too much. The darkness is too thick. He said it was dark. Verse 17, it was now dark. The darkness is too thick. We can't even see where we're going anymore because the storm is too great and we can't see a way through. We have no control. I mean... Can you see them start to wonder, loved ones? Does Jesus even care that we're still out here? Does he even care? Does he even know that we're probably going to lose our lives? I mean, does he even care that we're still going through this? I mean, shouldn't he he have acted by now? Can we even trust that he's going to come and do what he said he would? He's taking too long. How many of us have uttered those same things? And don't we do the same thing when we're in the storm, when we're in the uncertainty, in the trial, in the darkness, in the fear, in the fatigue, when they begin to take their toll on us? See, we so often begin to feel as though God is taking too long to act in the situations we face. And as such, we begin to doubt his sovereignty, that he's in control and in his ability to come and help us. And so what is it for you right now? What is that for you right now that is causing you to doubt God's sovereign timing in that situation you're facing? Where you're just waiting for God to act 
and you've been out in the sea for a long time and it just seems to be getting darker. The waves seem to be getting bigger. The fear seems to be getting stronger. What is that for you right now? Maybe, maybe it's for some of us, it's in our jobs, waiting for God to act. Maybe it's in our marriages, with our finances, maybe in our health. And this is a huge one for me, uh, maybe with our children. What is it for you? And yet, right here in the middle of this, with the waves crashing in and the boat being battered, God tells us, Psalm 27, 14, where he says, wait on the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait on the Lord. Or he tells us Psalm 37, 5, where he says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. That's a promise. He will act. It may not be when you are expecting him to, as the disciples are about to find out here, but it will be at the right time, the perfect time. Trust in him. Wait on the Lord. See, God in his sovereignty is always in control. He's completely trustworthy and he will always fulfill what he says that he will do in his time, which is the perfect timing for us. He said he's going to meet up with the disciples. He's coming. He's never broken a promise in all of eternity. He's not going to start now. He's coming. He's going to act. Will we wait for him? Because here's the key truth. We so quickly forget when the darkness starts to close in, when the uncertainty starts to get bigger. We have to remember this. In our waiting, God is working. In our waiting, God is working. I love how John Piper puts this so beautifully. You'll see it on the screen here. He says this. The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. Let's read that again. The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. You see, this is what the disciples needed to have the faith to believe right here. And what we must have the faith to believe today and be reminded of. And because God is sovereign over my situation, loves me, and is a good father, I must trust him to act in his timing. But not just in his timing, I must also trust him through it to act in his way. To act in his way. Look at verse 19. It says this. When they, being the disciples, had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. See there where it says, when they had rowed about three or four miles. Once again, we must look 
to the gospel parallels to fill in some details for us. And you'll see it on the screen. Matthew 14, 24 gives us a picture of what this three or four miles was like. It says this, but the boat by this time, after they'd rowed the three or four miles, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Okay. Now the Sea of Galilee is not that big. You have to understand, it's not that big a lake. And so what this means is, it was not three or four miles near the shoreline, okay? It was approaching the center of the lake, the worst part of the storm. The center of the lake. And Jesus, notice what he's doing. Jesus is deliberately having them go out into the middle of the lake, in the deepest water, where it's the fiercest. There's not just cruising the shore. They couldn't just get out of the boat when they felt like it to ease the situation. They had no control. And we're also told in Matthew 14, 25 that it was now the fourth watch of the night. Okay, keep this one. This is so key. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. When did they get in the boat? Remember? First part of the message, when did they get in the boat? Right after the 5,000 were fed at dinner time. How long have they been in the boat? Hours. Hours. Professional fishermen. Hours. Straining. Making no headway. Beaten by the waves. Being pushed out. Pushed out. All of a sudden, all their experience started to bail out. All of the things they had trusted in bailed out. Their knowledge of the sea? Useless at this point. They've been there for hours. And look at this back half of verse 19, when they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Let's read that again. That's pretty awesome. When they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Jesus is walking on the sea. Don't let that escape you. Do you realize, so often we can get so familiar with a text and just breeze over that. He's walking on the sea. Mm Mm-hmm. And here we see this awesome picture of Jesus making himself known to his disciples on his terms. He said he's coming. He's doing it on his terms. And I highly doubt, how do we know that? Well, I highly doubt the disciples would have chosen to meet Jesus this way. You? I highly doubt they could have even imagined meeting Jesus this way. He's meeting them on his terms. But instead of recognizing him, notice there in verse 19, the the very last part, they were frightened. Instead of recognizing him for who he was, they became frightened and terrified. And the parallel gospels in Matthew and Mark tell us they were so terrified they thought he was a ghost and they cried out. They're like, oh wait, what's going on? They thought he was a ghost. Okay. You see a picture here because, I mean, how do you even put that into words? Like, how do you even describe that? Okay, so let's get a picture to live in this text as best we can. 
Disciples, Jesus. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes here. It's the middle of the night in a raging storm, and you're terrified. It's totally dark all around. You're just about out of strength because you've been on the sea for hours. Waves are tossing your boat all over the place. Just picture this. There's a good chance by this point you're thinking you're going to die. That you can't take anymore. And then to top it all off, you see someone who you think is a ghost coming towards you. It just, as I was preparing this, it just begs the question, doesn't it? Why wouldn't Jesus just calm the wind down first and make sure they got to the shore safe and then meet up with them? I mean, why wouldn't he just make it comfortable and easy, the quick little boat trip across the lake, doing it all their lives, I'll meet you on the other side. I mean, wouldn't he have still done what he promised to do to meet with them, right? Yeah. Why did he do this? I mean, why wouldn't he just make it easy instead of terrifying them by sending them through a storm and then walking on water towards them? I mean, as if they weren't fearful enough already, why reveal himself this way? And here it is, right here. Eyes up here. You see this? Can we put that back up on the screen? You see this? Because even though the disciples wouldn't have chosen this way, and it's not the way they would have liked it. Here it is. It was the way that Jesus, in his sovereignty, knew they needed it. They didn't like it, but he knew they needed it this way. Because Jesus wanted something much more for them than for them just to get to shore. He wanted their faith. He wanted their hearts in him to see and believe in who he really was as the son of God who has authority and sovereignty over all creation, even going to the lengths of supernaturally suspending the law of gravity to reveal this to them. He went to that length to reveal it. I was going to try to illustrate that whole suspending law of gravity thing for you this morning. That was just going to go bad. So we just got to picture it, okay? And imagine what that was like. You see, in their way, the disciples just wanted the shore. But in Jesus' way, he wanted their hearts. The shore was just too small a thing. The shore was just too small a thing. And even though he had tried to show them his true identity and his power through all the signs that we've looked at in this series and the many others that we didn't, the hearts of the disciples up till this point were still hard and couldn't recognize him and his sovereignty over their lives. And quite often the truth is this, Jesus will take us to the end of ourselves and our way of doing things because it's in those times we see him for who he really is and realize that he is all we need. 
It's not a comfortable place to be. But it's the best place to be. And so how many of us here are asking God to bring us through the trial or uncertainty we're facing on our terms? How many of us here are living our lives just in the day-to-day situations on our terms? Totally oblivious to the truth that God may have a greater work in those quote-unquote mundane situations. And we're doing things in our terms, in our ways. What about in our marriages? In the sicknesses that we're dealing with, us or loved ones? In the addictions we have, in the, in the temptations we face, in our parenting, in our jobs? Our way, our terms. Instead of trusting in His sovereignty and submitting ourselves to His way. And in a spirit of vulnerability, church, I will say this. I am learning this on a whole new level in church planting. His timing, His way. So much higher, so much better than ours. See, church, I'm comforted by this, that the path to faithfulness, the path of faithfulness is very seldom a straight line. It's not just a quick jaunt across the lake. Most times. John Piper said that. I was very helped by that this week. And God will often not do things the way you think He should. And He will not be forced into meeting our earthly agenda because His agenda for us is always greater and His glory, sovereignty, and power are always the focus of it. That's always a focus of God's agenda. His glory in our lives, His sovereignty, and His power. See, God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust Him through it for His timing and His way. And as we begin to trust Him through the situation, we are then able to begin to see Him through each part of it. God is sovereign over my situation. I must see Him in it. Here comes the climax. Ready? Verses 20 and 21. Climax point. Everything's been building to this point. Let's read. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. How glad do you think they were to hear that? It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. See where he says, it is I. Do not be afraid in verse 20. Jesus finally identifies himself to the disciples after he saw they weren't recognizing him. They thought he was a ghost, and they were frightened and terrified. But notice what happened as soon as he spoke. These words Jesus spoke overcame the terror and fear the disciples were experiencing because look at what happens. The next thing that happens in verse 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat. See, once, once, don't miss this, once they heard his voice, saw that it was Jesus and knew that he was with them, they were filled with gladness and eagerly invited him into the boat with them. His words and His presence. His words and His presence had brought peace and gladness into the middle of the storm. 
they still do today. And then look what happens in the last part of 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and look. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You've been on the sea for hours fighting the storm. Jesus gets in the boat. It's immediately at the land. And the vast majority of commentators agree on this point. This is miracle number two in this text. Immediately, they go from the center of the lake in the darkest part of the storm to the land. Just, okay, let's get out of the boat. You see, and to get the full picture of what is happening here after Jesus got in the boat and the wind had stopped, we need to go to Matthew 14. You'll see it on the screen. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, fills us in what happens after Jesus gets in the boat. It says, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And, and look at this verse. That's an amazing verse. This is a climax moment. Because when you see in this verse their reaction when Jesus gets in the boat, notice here there's nothing describing the shore. The whole thing they were pursuing in the first place. Hey, Jesus, this is a great shore you brought us to. There's lots of grass. We could have a picnic. We could set up a little community over here. Lots of flat land to stretch our things out. Lots of rocks to protect us for the shit. They don't even mention that. The very thing they were so focused on getting. Oblivious. When in the presence of God. Their only response was to see Jesus for who he really was as the Son of God who is sovereign all over all creation and they worshipped him. This is the only right response. And at this moment, see, climax moment right here, at this moment, Jesus had their hearts right there. All those other signs, all those other miracles. They couldn't see it, couldn't see it, couldn't see it. Jesus brings them to the end of their cells, and he has their hearts. And they don't understand it completely. They don't understand his deity. That was going to come after his death and resurrection afterwards. They would understand more completely. But at this moment, he had their hearts. And my question to us this morning is, does he have yours? Or are we still going for the shore as the greatest outcome? Does he have yours? Does he have mine? See, and all of a sudden, the shore, the very outcome that they had been so focused on getting, became too small a thing for them to pursue in comparison to God's glory and presence that was right in front of them. They worshipped. Are you and I Worshiping right now in that trial we're facing, in the uncertainty, in the fear, in the hurt, in the pain. You see, loved ones, look up here. This is so, okay, I love the fact you're taking notes. I just want to see your eyes for a sec. 
the worst possible outcome we could ever have in a situation is to get the outcome we're asking for, but to miss getting Jesus in the process. The worst possible outcome we could ever have is to get the outcome we're asking for, but miss getting him in the process. Getting your health, as we've been crying out to him for, maybe for years for some of us here, getting your health is just too small a thing. Getting that provision, whether it's for a spouse, whether it's for children, whether it's financially, whether it's for a house, whatever, getting that provision is just too small a thing. They're good things, but too small. Planting a church, Ray, is just too small a thing. This just begs the question this way. If God never gave you anything else except the promise of eternal life with him, would that be enough for you? Careful how you answer, because it'll take you up on it. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for me? Our flesh fights against this. And you see, God always has a greater work in mind as we go through the situations we face. And that greater work is him. He is the greatest outcome that we could ever have in whatever we're facing. He is the greatest outcome. And in his presence, as the disciples found out right here, there is lasting peace, rest, stillness, hope, joy, protection, relief, and nothing else or no other outcome can offer this. Nothing else will deliver that. There's always another shore to pursue. And when we see him, we find his strength. Our fears are defeated and his glory is shown in our lives as we worship him saying, truly, you are the son of God. You are sovereign. You are glorious. And the darkness may come and the fear may cripple and the pain may be intense and the wind may come, but you are the son of God. Where else am I going to go? Where else can I go? So how about you? How about me? What are we looking to as our greatest outcome in the situations we're facing? In fact, let's drill down this application a little bit more. Think of that one specific thing right now that's constantly been coming up over the course of this service. What is that thing for you? Just write that down. What is that that you're pursuing? That is your outcome instead of pursuing the Lord and seeing him through it. What is that for you? You see, loved ones, getting to the shore 
is just too small a thing. Are you getting him? By putting your faith in him alone and drawing near to him through his word, through prayer and through worship, right in the middle of what you are facing. And maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And your first step to getting Him is to confess Him as your Lord and Savior and believe that He is the sovereign God over all creation that came to earth and paid the penalty for your sin upon the cross so that you can have your sins forgiven and have a personal relationship with Him. That is awesome. That is the good news of the gospel. And this is where everything starts for you. And that's an invitation for you today. And the Bible's very clear that today when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart to that as the disciples were up to this point. And maybe you're here and you've surrendered your life to him, but you've been beginning to trust in other things, pursuing other outcomes, and now he is calling you back to repent and trust in his sovereignty over your life in that situation, in that trial you're facing, and to show you that he can still be trusted, he can still be seen, and he still says, it is I, do not be afraid. How will you respond to him today?